the maker movement. For those of you who are unfamiliar with it, this phrase refers to a recent trend towards, well, making things. Adweek has a pretty solid definition, saying that the maker movement is an umbrella term for independent inventors, designers, and tinkerers. It's a convergence of computer hackers and traditional artisans, and it taps into the American admiration for self-reliance and building things. With the growth of makerspaces in school systems, the maker movement has also been making its way into K-12 and other educational spaces across the world. Maker fairs across the country attracted an audience of 1.1 million people this year, and at the heart of the maker movement, there are few key players driving its growth. Dale Doherty, founder of Make Magazine and the original creator of Maker Fairs, is one of those people. And this week, we got some time to sit down with him and hear about what he predicts is next for making an education. So get your 3D printers and your safety goggles out, people. I'm Blake Montgomery. And I'm Mary Jomata. Welcome to the EdSearch Podcast. Let's get started. In its inaugural year, Valor Academy's fifth graders had the strongest performance among 180 Nashville schools on the state tests. But it's not just due to any methods of standard-based instruction. As EdSearch columnist Alex Hernandez found out when he visited the charter system, Valor's team is trying to build a school where social-emotional skills are just as important as academics. Hernandez got an inside look at the recipe for Compass, Valor Academy's compelling social-emotional learning strategy, and how it's implemented. Essentially, students learn to build and repair relationships, make and present progress on their individualized learning plans, and ultimately, take control of their own learning. Companies that optimize key metrics such as growth and revenue are more likely to find success. Or that's how the conventional wisdom goes. But in education, conventional metrics often fail to signal whether learners are actually learning. Luke Shepard, Chief Technology Officer at eSpark Learning, offered a couple pointers this week on EdSurge for how entrepreneurs can rigorously track and report on the educational outcomes of their tools. Shepard proposes two key metrics that most learning products can track and report on. One is median performance percentile, which is a specific, broadly useful metric for measuring overall academic performance for a set of students. The other? You'll have to read the article to find out. A teacher's first year is typically marked by too much coffee, not enough sleep, and a weird oscillation between euphoria and frustration. Trust me, I've been there. Jinsu Hyu, the personalized learning manager at Alpha Public Schools and our newest EdSearch columnist, knows that this disillusionment phase is all too real. He's got his four tips for anyone supporting a first-year teacher this week on EdSurge, and especially brings it up for that mad sprint to winter break. Here's a big hint. Simplicity is key. Specifically, distill any personalized learning model to the foundational components and lose all of those jargony terms. On the same day that the government's new educational technology plan was released, President Obama signed the Every Student Succeeds Act into law. Coincidence? Much of the focus on ESSA has been on returning control back to the states, not so much on the implications for education technology. Carolyn Chong, an analyst at Bellwether Education Partners, looked at how the act could impact ed tech decisions and why personalized learning champions may be both excited and a tad disappointed. Specifically, more flexibility for state assessments could eliminate a barrier to personalized learning that was inherent in the rigid NCLB accountability model. 
But on the other end, student data privacy is still a thorny issue for personalized learning, and don't expect much guidance from the federal government anytime soon. The holidays aren't just a time for food and caroling. In a moment of reflection, Lillian Rita, a 16-year-old Syrian Muslim born and raised in America, sagely observes, history threatens to repeat itself once more. This week, she shares on EdSurge powerful lessons about education, equality, segregation, and society, and she encourages us all to have an open mind before it's too late. And now it's time for Kachings. Aloview, a Baltimore, Maryland-based startup, has raised $5.1 million in a Series A round led by Rethink Education. Red House Education, Serious Change 2, Kapoor Capital, and Baltimore Angels also joined. Founded in 2013, Aloview offers a tool that helps school districts manage their budgets and finances. Meanwhile, down south, Mastery Prep, a Baton Rouge, Louisiana-based company that offers online and in-person test prep services to help students with the ACT College Readiness Test, has raised $3.6 million in a round led by the Catalyst Group. In a rare disclosure for a funding announcement, the startup claimed it made $4.7 million in revenue in 2015. Congrats to all of you and to Mastery Prep and all the other companies that made fundraising announcements this week. As we mentioned before, the roughly 150 maker fairs across the country attracted an audience of 1.1 million people this year. As those at Make Media pointed out to me, that's the same number of people as attended Taylor Swift's 1989 tour. Make Media has also opened a pop-up store in San Francisco's Union Square. It's been a big year for the movement. So we asked Make Media CEO Dale Doherty, who actually coined the term maker back in 2005, one big question. What's next for the maker movement and education? You know, in many ways, we are seeing a pivot here in the educational you know, world, I think, uh, away from the you know, uh, standardized testing and uh, 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 teaching to the test to really trying to explore um, how kids learn and uh, what, in what manner do they learn the best. And I, I think the maker movement is being brought into, into education from sort of informal education coming into formal education and uh, uh, led by, you know, on a grassroots level by teachers, students in some cases, uh, and, um, and, uh, um, um, and less so by administrators and, and, and others at the top, but that's starting to happen a little bit as well. He also said that the maker movement, by definition, had to start in the informal educational spaces, then integrate into the formal parts. Hmm. Make Media just launched a school maker fair program in May, despite how long it's been around. Yeah. Why do you think that is, MJ? I don't know. I mean, the maker movement to me has always been about that self-motivation piece and tinkering. You know, when I was a science teacher, we used to do that all the time. And at its basis, it's the Montessori model. You know, makers want to build things. And Dale called it a coalition of the willing. That's kind of contrary to the typical mandates of public education. But parents are starting to see the benefits of a combination of the two. One of the lessons we've learned from Maker Fair is that, that parents, um, you know, are important drivers of, uh, of this. Um, 
You know, they they themselves have questions about how does how does my child sort of acquire the right skill sets to participate in this new economy? And it, you could break it down and say, like, you know, I want my kids to be engaged in technology and science and things like that, but how do I do that? Um, they don't seem to be that interested in it at school. You know, they're mm-hmm. opting out of it. So how do I stimulate this interest? Um, and either discover that the interest is there or to help, you know, generate it in some cases. And kids seem super willing to adopt these things, hence the Maker Movement's growing audience. Right, and when the adults see that, you know, if they're involved, they recognize it. Kid toys have enjoyed a huge year. You know, the Makey Makeys, the Little Bits, and two of the top five selling items in the Maker Shed store are actually kits of these things. Dale said that these, more than any other toy, showcase the true spirit of the Maker Movement. You know, that, there's this whole dimension of, uh, like, it isn't just little bits, but there's lots of these choices out there where, I, I, and it's kind of, I almost hate to see them called educational products because kids don't want that. They want something that's fun. They want to play. <laughs> but, you know, they, they you know, it, it really is construction toys uh, like make block and, and, uh, and other things that um, it really engage their imagination as, as much as anything. And uh, I think that the element that still is, um, well, the element that I think is really new here is how do you, how do you ground this in a creative context? It might be about Arduino, but it isn't just about learning Arduino. It's like, well, what are you going to do with it? It's sort of a creative idea, something that, you know, rings your own bells, you know, it, so that's, I think, the grounding of maker movement is like finding projects and cool things to do that, that almost give you a reason to learn the technology or to learn, you know, you know the skills of making. Um, and and that's, that's kind of where our focus of the magazine has always been, is, is almost like on the applications. It's cool. How do I get to do that? Well, you have to learn how to do this and learn how to do that. You know, okay, I'll do that because I really want to be able to, um, you know, produce that project. You know, uh, so if you you can put things together in different ways or you can use this to create something that's important to you. But what's the difference between going to a maker fair and just participating in project-based learning at school? It seems like there doesn't need to be a bunch of hoopla about identifying as a quote-unquote maker. That's actually a really good question, Blake. And I got that question when I went and visited a project-based learning school in Los Angeles a couple weeks ago. I mean, you'd think that the maker movement would be all about project-based learning, but there are debates as to whether or not that's true. Now, Dale sees making and project-based learning as subtly yet indelibly separate. You know, sometimes we, in the educational settings, I think we're always trying to script kids so that we never kind of let them free to just create something. We tell them what to do. And we say, then, then we justify it because it has some pedagogical value. And, and I think a lot of project-based learning follows that pattern. You know, it's like, we want you to learn X, but we want you to do Y. And, you know, the kid, the kid, you know, it's good even if it's hands-on to do why, but it's even better if they have an opportunity to think for themselves, to, um, you know, create and see that, you know, what happens when they, in a sense, take a risk on a, on a creative idea. And don't forget, 
Big key difference, project-based learning is often assigned. There's a huge difference between a teacher telling you to learn to make something in a classroom of 20 people and deciding to take it on alone in your garage by yourself. The idea of it being yours plays a huge role. You know, one of the real reasons the maker movement, I think, has traction today is that people consider it as an opportunity for self-expression. You know, when I make something, it says something about myself. Um, and the more that, you know, I might, like, like when I cook and I follow someone else's recipe, I still feel like, you know, the thing I cooked was mine. You know, I made it. And, and then, you know, but if you go a little bit further and you say, well, actually, I, I made this recipe up, you know, you feel like, oh, that's even more mine. And then, so you kind of have these stages in making where initially, like, if you have never, you know, built and launched a, a, a rocket, you know, it's something, you know, lots of people have done in the past. There's nothing new that you're doing, but you get the opportunity to do it. You get to participate. And, and so that is your thing. So we got a good picture of the maker movement, and we heard Dale talk about it, but I still don't know what's actually next. Oh, right, 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 right. Okay, well, if we look into what California community colleges are doing to integrate making into their work and their models, that actually may give us some insight. Uh, in my view, community colleges can be used you know, in a number of ways. One is, is uh, uh, you know, the community colleges is, is, is traditionally more diverse population than, than four-year colleges and universities. So from a selfish point of view, I'd love to see more um, community college students have access to the uh, tools um, for making and, and the practices of making. Uh, but I think that schools themselves can, um, can help um, really develop the skills and attitudes for 21st century uh, creative economy that, that we're talking about here. Uh, rather than sort of the traditional methods of teaching and the traditional methods of engaging students, we can um, have much more a hands-on, uh, practitioner-oriented uh, uh, um, um, version of, of, of uh, or at least have these opportunities available to students at the community college level. Community college can also serve as a, um, a hub in a community, particularly like rural communities and others, for um, training of teachers and, and others who are um, engaging in making outside. Huh. Yeah, I usually think of makerspaces as extra colorful second grade classrooms with like maybe a 3D printer. So I wonder what a makerspace in higher education would look like. I mean, is it just a workshop? Uh, maybe. I mean, makerspaces as I think of them, they don't just involve one project with a blueprint. You basically walk in and have the freedom to do whatever you want. We'll see, though. I'm actually more interested in what's really next for the movement as a whole. Is it going to continue to grow at the speed that it's been going? I mean, I'm not going to lie. I'm a little bit skeptical. And it's probably because I've heard some critics say that the maker movement is a bit, I don't know, pretentious. I mean, is it just about rich kids in Montessori schools playing around with hardware toys like Makey Makeys? Um, we can kind of have this really divided world of... Um, of people uh, who use technology that's built by other people uh, that are smarter than them in some way, who they consider that, you know, and they they don't get to determine what that technology is. You know, they don't get to, in a sense, determine what that future is. And I would love to see a world, you know, which I think is happening through the maker movement, where everybody participates and everybody has a degree of control. Um, 
and, and expression into what that future is. Um, uh, so it's not something that's done by technocrats or, you know, a few companies. It's something that I can do for myself, and if I can't buy it, I can make it. Mm-hmm. it has, that change has to happen on a personal level, I think, before it happens on a social level. And the maker movement right now is, is in my view, doing a great job at activating on the personal. You know, like there's a real personal connection. And keep in mind, people, the call for makers at the 2016 Maker Fairs are open. The interesting thing about Maker Fair is I never quite know what's new <laughs> until we, it comes in. You know, we just put the call up for makers or, or about to. I, I don't know if it's up there yet, but um, makerfair.com. And so people tell us, you know, I don't go out and, and, and look for things. Things come in. I heard Dale wants you to make a couch. I, I really think the home is, is a really interesting place for us to focus on. And whether that's, you know, where does our furniture come from, lamps, uh, uh, wall hangings, uh, how can we, um, what happens in the home? And, and uh, um, uh, where, what are the methods of making them or the community of makers that are producing things, you know, that end up in the home? Uh, we could sit here and talk about this stuff all day, but one producer's note for full disclosure, Dale Doherty is an investor in NetSurge. A huge thanks to Dale Doherty for sharing with us all of his insights into the maker world. And thanks to Jin Soo Hugh, Alex Hernandez, Carolyn Chung, and all of the other writers who contributed to NetSurge this week. We know you're gearing up for the holidays, probably grabbing those last minute gifts and stuffing turkeys, but if you're interested in a bit of EdTech fun, why not peruse our EdSurge product index, a mix between Wikipedia and Crunchbase for education technology. It's fun to play around with. With over 1,600 products listed there, you can check out all the EdTech products on the market with teacher reviews, videos, and more. Looking for a classroom management tool, trying to streamline a permission slip collecting process? There's a tool in there for everyone. Yeah, are there any stocking stuffer tools listed in the index, Blake? Honestly, after talking with Dale Doherty, I wouldn't mind getting some hardware maker tools in my stocking. Like some little bits, some makey-makey, maybe a cano. What about a 3D printer? Hmm, I feel like my stocking would have to be a little bigger in order to stuff one of those in there. I mean, I do have size 12 feet, but like... (laughs) Well, we'll see what we can do. Maybe I can get you a very, very mini version of a 3D printer. And with that, I'm Mary Jo Matta. And I'm a 3D printed Blake Montgomery. Happy holidays. We'll see you next week. This is the Ed Surge Podcast.